Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Welcome to Space 3D. Believe it or not, this marks the first episode of Season 5 of our podcast. We are joined by Morgan and Lee Grant Irons for a discussion of everything we wanted to know about the intricacies of terraforming and more. Morgan is a soil and crop sciences PhD candidate in the Lehman Lab at Cornell University, where her research focuses on microbial adhesion mechanisms and organo-mineral organo-organic interactions in soil aggregates and their effects on soil organic carbon sequestration under earth gravity and microgravity conditions. Lee Grant Irons is a scientist and engineer with experience in the fields and industries of space plasma and computational physics, nuclear power design and operations, radioactive and hazardous waste management, environmental remediation, and large-scale engineering and construction projects. In part one of our interview, we'll get acquainted with these researchers, define what terraforming is, and which planets Morgan and Lee would choose to terraform first, and then we'll discuss recent experiments Morgan sent up on the International Space Station and on a suborbital Blue Origin spaceflight. Welcome to Space 3D. You are joined this evening by Eleanor Rangers and her co-host Tom Hill. Um, unfortunately, Emily was unable to join us this evening, but we are delighted to be kicking off the fourth season of our podcast with an interview with Morgan Irons and Lee Grant Irons, and they're going to be discussing terraforming this evening, which is something quite intriguing. I've heard the term bantered about uh, in many space discussions, but I really honestly have very little understanding of uh, all of the issues pertaining to that, as I'm sure many of our audience members are equally thinking as well. So hopefully this will be an enlightening interview for all of us. As usual, we will basically have an informal conversation with our guests uh, and asking questions and kind of going from there. So everyone pretty knows the format. So welcome, Morgan and Lee. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great. Maybe I can uh, turn it over briefly to both of you to introduce yourselves formally and give us uh, a little bit of information on your backgrounds and, and also how you got interested in this particular discipline. Go ahead, Morgan. Uh, yes. So my name is Morgan Irons. I am currently a PhD candidate in soil and crop sciences at Cornell University, working with Dr. Johannes Lehman. And currently my research looks specifically at bacterial organic adhesives, uh, the mechanism behind these adhesives and how they affect soil structure like soil aggregates and their effects on soil organic carbon persistence. And this research 
of course, I have experiments going for here on Earth, but with this research as well, I've also sent Earth soil and biochar up to the International Space Station and on a Blue Origin parabolic flight. So I'm looking at these fundamental soil microbiome biogeochemistry mechanisms <laughs> uh, on Earth and in space to better understand specifically soil formation and the persistence of carbon and the creation of biogeochemical cycles like the carbon cycle in soil, which of course is very important for uh, soil management and soil development here on Earth, but also when we go out into space and use the geological substrate of other planets, we need to understand these underlying mechanisms of soil formation. And so that's what I'm currently doing at Cornell. Uh, but I started this research into earth and space agriculture and food security back when I was an undergraduate at Duke University. And my research while I was at Duke focused on uh, closed ecological system research for space habitation and extreme environment living. And that's really where I found this connection between earth and space agriculture and the similar challenges between the two. And this led me to pursue my degrees in environmental science and biology and chemistry while I was at Duke and truly understand the importance of understanding the soil, which of course led me to now be a PhD candidate at Cornell. So I've been working in this sphere uh, for Let's see, it's been coming up on six years now. Yeah, so I definitely love what I do. And it's always my goal to bring the environmental science and biology and soil science perspectives into this area of study and show how we can solve for Earth and space at the same time. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, Lee, can you give us a little bit of, of your background as well? Well, sure. Um, I uh, actually started back in graduate school working in uh, space and computational physics. I was actually on uh, in, in the research and development of, of space station freedom back in the 80s and was uh, studying uh, the impact of of uh, the plasma and Earth's magnetosphere on uh, on satellite surfaces. Came out of graduate school in 1990, and you know that was that was in this time period of uh, the U.S. space program, where the shuttle program was about halfway through its life, and um, that system there there wasn't a whole lot of hiring going on there, and that was predominantly what was happening. I had one interview with, with JPL, but uh, there was just really no, not a lot of space jobs, space industry jobs available at the time. Of course, that was before the new space industry was even probably a, a twinkle in anybody's eye. So um, went from there into actual, actually uh, Navy nuclear power, um, and then from there into Department of Energy uh 
site environmental remediation, turning uh, plutonium production facilities into green fields again. So quite a broad experience in, in both power and in environmental aspects as, as well as uh, space physics and and now also in design because I went from, from working at DOE to doing Navy work again, uh, designing uh, major ship systems. So when you talk about you know, a floating city on, on the ocean. I mean, we, we have the example of Star Trek, right? Star Trek is not the Air Force. It's the Navy, right? It comes out of the, the whole Navy paradigm. Yeah. And, and that's because the Navy has been building cities floating on the ocean for, for decades. Um, spaceship, you know, in space is just a city floating in space when you, when you have it fully, fully crewed with, you know, hundreds of people. You know, per the per the per the Star Trek storyline. So you put all that mixed together, and uh, then my daughter comes along, and she's interested in, in merging environmental science and space. And it was like this: this looks like a really good opportunity to 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 do some really neat things. So uh, my initial foray into the new space industry was, of course, assisting my daughter uh, Morgan with with her efforts and and promoting. Her career, and and we've done a, a number of promoting activities together, both on on the research side and on the commercial industry side. Um, and we didn't really want to talk about that in this particular uh, session. But what I'm working on right now is I'm executive director of Norfolk Institute, which is a a nonprofit research and development institute uh, working on the problems of human resilience. Uh, both in in space and on Earth. And in this current effort that Morgan has been going through with her her ISS research, her, her Blue Origin launch, and this particular paper, she's been a, a fellow with the Norfolk Institute, and Norfolk Institute has been providing some of the funding uh, for those efforts. Wow. So a, a lot on the, on the, on both of your resumes. And, uh, also want to mention for the audience, as, uh, Lee already mentioned that, uh, he and Morgan are related. They are father and daughter. So, uh, it's pretty interesting that, uh, both of you have, uh, intersecting, uh, career interests with, uh, with this. Tom, did you want to kick off, uh, with some of the initial, uh, questions? Sure. So, so with the idea of terraforming, uh, let's let's start with an easy one. What planet would you terraform first? Well, that's the uh, interesting question, isn't it, Tom? So, in the in the context of the current paper that Morgan and I worked on, and you know, I will admit we threw the word terraforming in the title to catch some attention, uh, but terraforming is really the end goal of the entire concept of sustainability in space, which is really what the paper is about. If you can make a, a system that is uh, sustainable enough to effectively replace Earth entirely, then you have effectively terraformed and you've gotten an ideal, uh, perfect, uh, sustainable system. Uh, but I think probably most people listening to this are probably thinking, go for Mars, go for Mars because that's a lot of the people that we're associated with. So that's probably really the closest uh, thing to terraform at hand. Morgan? 
It's a very interesting question, especially since a lot of my work not only looks at space, but also at ecological agricultural systems here on Earth as well. And looking at the soil degradation that we've been experiencing through decades and hundreds of years of intensive agricultural practices, most of which were implemented around the world through European colonialization, uh, because much of the indigenous communities were actually performing really sustainable uh, agricultural systems. And so we're still suffering a bit from uh, the introduction of these intensive practices from European colonialism. And so we're seeing soil degradation happening. We're seeing the effects of climate change on agricultural systems and ecological systems. And so we actually have need of understanding how to revitalize our ecological and agricultural systems here on Earth as well, as well as people who are interested in expanding out into more extreme environments, uh, such as uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, with efforts to make green spaces in the middle of the desert, uh, or helping uh, the people up in the Arctic who are experiencing a shift in their food sources and food needs due to climate change. And so there's actually reasons to also focus on some terraforming back here on Earth as well. And maybe terraforming isn't the right word necessarily, since when we talk about terraforming, it's really uh, a reflection of similarity between what we're terraforming and our model system, which is Earth. Uh, but there's definitely uh, this shift happening where we need to understand how to conserve and restore our ecological systems here on Earth. And this is important information that we'll need when we go out to another planet such as Mars because we need to understand not only how do ecological systems form from bare rock over time, how do biogeochemical cycles start, uh, but also how do we sustain and conserve that, especially if you start to see degradation happening like we have here on Earth. And so for me, I think it's a parallel project where let's say we start with Mars, start terraforming on Mars, we need to make sure that we're keeping up with the research and efforts on Earth as well, because we need that continuous information and those techniques and those management practices to be able to make sure that we're doing the same on Mars and not repeating the same mistakes that we've made here on Earth. Uh, so that's how I would answer that question. Okay, well, it's, here's a proposed term for what you were talking about there. Let's call it Terra reforming. Oh, I like that. <laughs> there you go. So a friend of mine has given a few talks at uh, Mars Society conferences where he calls, he uses the term uh, space tech is green tech, where the ideas of sustainability, reuse, and things like that, that we can practice here on Earth, you know, are going to be applicable in space. So I think uh, I think you're definitely talking along the same lines. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
you know, I actually I just one additional question about this which planet, and I, and I know obviously you know Mars is always the one that comes top of mind. Uh, I've actually read that there's been some thought about Mercury of all planets, maybe uh, not impossible and maybe somewhat easier to terraform because um, I guess one of the major issues that could be impeding the reality of terraforming on Mars is the fact that it has a very weak magnetic field. Whereas Mercury, I think has uh, a, a magnetic field that's closer to closer to Earth's maybe I may be mistaken by that, but it sounds like, there's some there's been some debate about well maybe an easier planet to do this would be mercury or and and i've even heard venus being thrown around um but that has its own set of problems i don't know if you had any comments on that yeah i've heard uh the the ideas about mercury uh i I think fundamentally mercury becomes a challenge just because it's so close to sun and uh, you don't have as much early warning on on solar flares you know you get deep enough underground on, on any planet, you can provide more protection uh, to the humans. Um, but yeah, Mercury's, Mercury's an interesting interesting idea. So I liked your mention of, uh, of the Space Force. I, I work with people who transitioned to the Space Force in the last year. It's been kind of interesting. And uh, this is a small aside. The, uh, I read an opinion piece that said, if the Space Force doesn't adopt Navy rank, they're not thinking far enough ahead. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. Star, Star Trek has so much weight in the whole new space industry. I mean, the, the, the geeks that started up the new space industry were probably Star Trek geeks as well. I mean, it just is what it is. So, yeah, the Air Force is, is, is going to have to, is going to have to look at that long and hard, especially getting into an era where funding is really dependent more and more upon citizen support. And uh, a lot of citizens out there support the, the whole Star Trek paradigm. So can you define for us exactly what terraforming is and maybe give us the Reader's Digest condensed version of what are some of the major obstacles that, I mean, I realize this is still a hypothetical, but it would be good to understand a little bit about some of the major hurdles that need to be scaled in order to, to actually accomplish this off-world. Uh, Morgan, would you like me to initiate this? All good. So terraforming is literally recreating an earth function, an earth natural function in a location where it doesn't exist. So literally you're forming earth where it isn't currently formed. In our conversation with our paper, we're getting down to granular functionality of the ecosystem. So you can talk about, uh, the the oxygen and carbon dioxide cycles you can talk about the nitrogen cycle you can talk about the water cycle and and morgan can can go more into detail on on all those biogeochemical cycles as well as all of the ecosystem services that that come out of those natural functions and and that support humans and so when we talk about terraforming what we are talking about um, and, and specifically in this paper, is recreating a human sustainment function that is normally provided by Earth, but recreated it in a, recreating it in a location where it doesn't naturally exist. So whether that's 
on a spaceship at a Mars base or whether it's, you know, in an extreme environment on Earth, um, then, then that's what we're referring to. And I think probably most listeners, when they think of terraforming, they're picturing, you know, these alien landscapes of, of Mars or Venus that, that have been transformed into an Earth-like Eden, if you will. Um, and that's ultimately where terraforming can take you. But in our stepwise approach into space, Morgan and I are kind of bringing it back a little bit and saying, well, before you get there, you have to start providing these lesser or smaller chunk um, Earth functions to humans in a spaceship or, or in a localized base on another planet. So along those lines, um, the International Space Station is the best thing we have going right now. What, how, so I guess the big deal is closing the loop. You know, if you if you've got a perfect system, you're reusing 100% of what you what you uh, have used. What's the estimated closure percentage on the International Space Station now? Oh, geez, I I haven't done the analysis on that, um, but the International Space Station. I think the engineers for the International Space Station will will say this as, as well. Is that it's really it really those systems really weren't designed to be sustainable uh, from, from a perspective of lasting indefinitely and being able to be disconnected from Earth by any major distance. The stuff on the International Space Station is largely still experimental. The, the people that go up are, are mostly military trained, mostly government employees. Um, of, of the various governments that, that go up there. So, um, you know, there's just been a few civilians that have gone up. So those, those systems, I mean, the International Space Station literally is within hours of Earth uh, for astronauts to escape from it if, if things fail. Um, they just hop into a Dragon or, or into a Soyuz. And, and they're down on Earth within hours. But that's an initial step, right? We, we, we had to have that to start testing systems, seeing how they function. Uh, they're beginning to introduce bioregenerative elements into it. I mean, they're beginning to try to grow food on the International Space Station. But again, it's just very experimental. It's not in anything close to a, to a, to a sustainable uh, situation. And of course, NASA and government agencies can only do so much, which is why organizations like NASA Centennial Challenge and the Deep Space Food Challenge that they put out uh, are so important uh, through inviting the public, inviting experts and people from different fields to come out and put their ideas into action and propose their ideas uh, because NASA can't do everything. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of work that still needs to be done. And a lot of this work is probably going to be done by independent researchers, universities, uh, private companies, uh, instead of solely government. Uh, so it's, it's going to be exciting to see what people come up with and what people send into space to test. 
Well, actually, speaking of those private entities or non-governmental agencies doing that, you actually have uh, flown something or are in the process of flying something on station and also uh, with Blue Origin. So we'd love to uh, hear a little bit about that work. Yes. So uh, with the International Space Station, uh, with Cornell University, and uh, many other partners. Uh, so for the International Space Station experiment, we had help, of course, from uh, my PhD committee here at Cornell, uh, Dr. Johannes Lehman, Dr. Anid Martinez, and Dr. Anthony Hay. We also had uh, collaborations with Dr. Matthias Rielig over at Free University in Berlin, uh, received funding from the Norfolk Institute, the Zwillenberg Tietz Stiftung uh, Foundation, the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Program, as well as our company collaborators like Rhodium Scientific, Bio365, uh, and of course, CASIS, the ISS National Lab. So when we talk about this International Space Station experiment, it's not just a solo effort. It's very much you need to have collaborators to send anything into space. And so with this experiment, uh, we sent the first natural Earth soils and biochar growth media into space. We sent a uh, soil from Ithaca, New York, which is where I'm based. Uh, we also sent a uh, soil from Berlin, Germany, that was provided by Dr. Matthias Rillig. Uh, and then the biochar growth media was provided by Bio365. And so what we were really looking for with this experiment, its it was really exploratory because, of course, no one's ever done this before. <laughs> so what kinds of questions do you ask when you're on the cutting edge uh, of an unexplored question and unexplored space. Uh, so we were interested to see how uh, microgravity or free fall would affect uh, the fungal populations, the bacteria populations in these soils. Uh, we were also interested in seeing how the effects on the microbiome would affect the soil structure. So aggregation, which is where the soil clumps together with uh, minerals and organic matter in organo-mineral and organo-organic interactions. Uh, we were interested to see if there would be any shift or effect in those interactions uh, with the microbiome as well as the general chemistry that's happening to see if more aggregation happened or if we would have this disaggregation effect, which is where the soil minerals don't clump together, but fall apart. Uh, and this is very important to understand uh, whether the soil would be able to support plants and microorganisms on other planets because the aggregation of a soil affects your porosity and this affects your air exchange, your water exchange, the ability of the roots of plants to really move throughout a soil structure and a soil horizon. Uh, and I learned this the hard way working with a Mars regolith simulant in my undergraduate years, the importance of this porosity structure with the aggregation. And so we were interested to see if gravity played a part in soil structure with the microbiome. Uh, and then we were also looking at uh, the carbon cycling as well, uh, seeing if uh, 
we had increased carbon mineralization, which is where carbon is pretty much released uh, through biological chemical processes as carbon dioxide into the air, or if it is sequestered away in that if this aggregation is happening, if microorganisms are still helping to clump soil together, then the organic matter that's in the soil is going to be occluded away and it won't be released as CO2, but allowed to stay in the soil, which affects your soil fertility over time. And this is very much in the conversation here on Earth. You, you when you talk about carbon sequestration, you have to talk about the soil. And this is really the fundamental process that people talk about when they talk about soil carbon sequestration uh, is the occlusion of this organic matter and this carbon uh, into the actual soil structure. So we were very interested in how these fundamental mechanisms work in space, but also how gravity plays a part in it and if it will help us better manage the soil microbiome uh, here on Earth. So that's really what we were doing with the International Space Station experiment, looking at two mineral soils in the biochar growth media, which of course, as I said, has implications for both Earth and space. Uh, with the Blue Origin experiment, which I received through receiving the 2019 Ken Susan Memorial Space Flight Competition Award uh, through ASGSR and Blue Origin. Uh, with that experiment, I was able to send samples up in a parabolic flight. And so it's a little bit more difficult to test biological systems when you're only in microgravity for a couple of minutes, especially when you're dealing with microbes, because microbes need at least 10 minutes in, uh, in a microgravity environment to form like a protein, uh, depending on the microorganism you're looking at. So we had to think about what we could get out of this Blue Origin experiment. And what we figured out was since this Blue Origin experiment was happening after the ISS experiment, that we could use this Blue Origin experiment as a complement, a qualitative complement to the ISS experiment because we couldn't really separate the rocket effects from the microgravity effects as much as we wanted, which we're gonna keep in mind for future uh, soil science studies in space. Uh, so with the Blue Origin experiment, we could look at the rocket effects on the soil structure and the microbiome. Uh, of course, the Blue Origin New Shepard rocket is different from the rocket we went up in, which was a North of Grumman rocket. So that's why it's more of a qualitative than a quantitative comparison, because there's some differences in the rocket effects with regards to the engineering uh, but and the physics. But we could look at rocket effects in a general sense to see how that affects the soil for both uh, launch and return of the samples, but also look at this as an opportunity to develop soil handling practices for sending more soil into space, but also to receive samples back from space. I mean, we're talking about bringing Mars regolith soil samples back eventually uh, that have been collected by the Perseverance rover and bringing them back to Earth for analysis here on Earth. 
how do we actually handle those samples in a way where we're preserving the soil structure and potentially any biologics in the soil without destroying it when it has to go uh, through Earth's atmosphere? We haven't really answered that question. So we're hoping that with this Blue Origin experiment, we could start the conversation and start the development of these manage uh, these practices for soil handling for current and future uh, soil science missions. Thanks for listening. We'll continue our interview with Morgan and Lee Grant Irons in our next podcast. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.